If you need help getting Social Security Disability Benefits, then this podcast is for you. Give me 15 minutes and I'll pull back the curtain on disability and reveal the secrets to winning I've learned over the past 25 plus years. Hi, I'm Jonathan Ginsberg and I'm a practicing Social Security Disability Lawyer. I want to help deserving claimants just like you win the benefits you deserve and not one penny less. Now, if you already know you need help today, go to ssdanswers.com for a free and confidential evaluation of your case. It takes just two minutes. That's ssdanswers.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Now, let's start the show. Welcome to another episode of SSD Radio, your podcast for learning about Social Security Disability and how to improve your chances at winning disability benefits. I'm your host, Jonathan Ginsberg. Today, I have for you part two of my interview with attorney Cameron Khanna. If you recall, in part one, Cameron and I discussed what decision writers do and how they interact with judges. In this episode, I asked Cameron about what he learned from Social Security and their decision-making process after listening to literally hundreds of hearing recordings and reviewing hearing notes from judges all over the country. I found it very interesting to learn how much pressure Social Security puts on judges to make their decisions meet very rigid protocols. Gone are the days when a judge could issue an approval because he or she sensed that you were believable and deserving of benefits. Instead, Social Security disability decisions are increasingly based on what medical records say, which puts increasing pressure on judges to deny cases that have gaps in the medical record or ambiguity in the record. This says to me that we as claimants attorneys and as claimants need to put even more focus on producing evidence, both medical and non-medical, that judges can use to issue an approval. Now, here's part two of my interview with former Social Security Disability Decision Writer, Cameron Khanna. Now, did you ever have situations where a judge would send their decision back to you? because it was some mistake or error, things like that? So for me, it was a badge of honor that in three years, I never had a judge send a case back to me because of an error. And it was a badge of honor, but it's also very surprising because there were times, admittedly, as a decision writer, where I took liberties making minor adjustments that I felt made the case more policy compliant, um, but didn't necessarily change the entire outcome. So I never you know, just change the outcome of a case and then send it to the judge. I mean, that would be absurd and you would get in trouble. Um, and I don't think anybody would, would do that. But, you know, I, I'm being honest, I did maybe tweak RFCs a little bit because I noticed just a bad RFC or, you know, I would add in severe impairments that the judge didn't maybe catch, but the, it didn't change the overall outcome and nothing came back to me. So, you know, I guess I was lucky in that regard. And, you know, I don't think that you're supposed to do that. And I, and I think over time I stopped doing that, but there were times when I thought I could improve the case, right. Mm -hmm. I was eager and I wanted to improve it. Um, and I would do that, but no, to answer your question, I never had a case come back to me. I was really thankful. Now it does happen. Mm -hmm. So during my, um, stand at, you know, at the social security administration, I was fortunate, um, later in, in my tenure to, um, work in a detail capacity. They call it a detail. It's basically a temporary promotion. And I did serve as a group supervisor. So I had, you know, about 10 writers under 
my supervision for a four month stretch um, from October 2016 to February of 2017. And, you know, in that role as a group supervisor, I would obviously see the decisions that came back to writers who I was supervising. So um, it did happen. Um, I wouldn't call it very often mm -hmm. because by that point in, in the writing, you're going to be trained up enough to hopefully do a good enough job where judges aren't sending cases back, but no judges definitely will send cases back. Um, you know, especially if you, you know, change the RFC or and the RFC, um, by the way, just for people that's called residual functional capacity, which is a legal decision about what the person's, what the claimant's capacity to function, what's left over after you factor in all the medical issues. That's why they're called residual functional capacity. Because, uh, you know, we, we see these forms, people say, oh, get an RFC form. Well, actually, that's kind of, a, I think, a, a misnomer because the RFC is a legal decision. You may get a, a doctor to fill out a functional capacity form, but, you know, the residual part, that's what the judge decides, right? So, I mean, right. that's when you're saying you're making the, you know, the judge is coming up with the residual functional capacity, the RFC, that is the legal basis of the decision whether to approve or, or not. Right. So they'll definitely get mad if, you make any adjustments to the residual functional capacity um, um, that they stated in their instructions. They'll also send them back for, you know, if it's egregiously poor writing, they may send it back and say, oh, I want another writer in your mm -hmm. center to redo this. You know, this writer confused, you know, the he and she pronoun this many times and such right. and such. Um, normally they won't get sent back for grammatical errors. Normally that'll just be a kind of a, strongly worded email from an administrative law judge to either the group supervisor or maybe the hearing director or somebody like that, that, you know, this particular writer really needs to up their game. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, sometimes they will send cases back and sometimes they will request that a different writer write the case. But I was proud to say that never happened to me. And I guess your audience should also take comfort in knowing that um, a case will be sent back if the judge doesn't like what they receive. Um, in the first place. All right. And just, and I, I don't know if you even can comment on this, but you know, my sense has always been that most of the cases at hearing are decided under a functional capacity evaluation as opposed to a grid rule or a listing. Is it your sense that, that is that the case? I mean, did you see a lot of cases decided on a listing theory or were they mostly uh, functional? I don't capacity? think so. I think that you're correct. I think that the majority of the cases are probably um, decided based on what the residual functional capacity is determined to be and mm -hmm. you know, whether or not that turns out favorable or unfavorable. And the reason I say that is because I remember as a decision writer getting sort of exciting when you would get a meets listing case in your mm. queue, because it seems a lot easier to write one of those. And yeah. as a decision writer, you're always happy to have cases that are easier to write. So that and um, grid rule cases, I guess, is the same way. Um, a grid rule case is a case that, pretty much well you know they have a certain residual functional capacity but that means that they grid out so you don't really have to talk about anything else and that's right. a little bit easier too so but yeah i think i think definitely most cases i wrote probably had some sort of a residual functional capacity um, analysis in it okay did you ever see situations where you looked at the the, the evidence and you felt the judge was just wrong in his or her decision uh, yes yes jonathan i did um so the role of decision writer, again, is synonymous with attorney advisor. And the, the wording of attorney advisor sort of suggests that you as the attorney advisor are going to be advising 
perhaps the ALJ, um, where they can improve and, and maybe how this case should be um, disposed of, right? Mm -hmm. Now, again, I was a writer at the National Case Assistance Center, uh, basically a writing center. And I didn't work with any judges in particular. The culture at the National Case Assistance Center is one of don't second guess the judge unless you absolutely have to. Um, you know, there's a diff there, there are all kinds of different judges. Some, you know, may have egos, bigger egos than others. And I guess there was just this notion that you really don't want to be emailing judges and bothering them unless you absolutely have to. And so try to make it work. And there was this mantra that a lot of writers would say, which was write it, don't fight it. And if you can make it work, make it work. After all, they're the judge. Mm -hmm. They decided the case. And, you know, if you can make it work, make it work, right? Are they really going to change their mind um, as for the disposition? That's, it seems like a stretch. So for the most part, the culture at our writing center was to just try to make it work. Um, and even if you disagreed, frankly, um, I don't think I ever in three years went back to a judge and said, ALJ, I think you're wrong about this and this needs to be a favorable um, or vice versa, especially vice versa. Meaning, you know, if they, if they give a favorable and I didn't think it was deserving, I think that I probably thought to myself, wow, this person is getting really lucky mm -hmm. um, because this medical record doesn't support it, but I'm not going to be the person who goes in there and tries to yank away the benefits that the judge is about to award them. I mean, unless it's just ridiculously incompliant with policy and, but no, I never did that and, and I would never do that. I'm happy for people to get benefits. So I tend to be a little bit more claimant centric just because I think having worked with you in the past um, yep. and just my personality, but, but no, Jonathan, there were times when I kind of scratched my head at the, just at the instructions and was thinking to myself, okay, I guess I'm going to try to make this work. Um, and I think the judges just don't always have as much time as they need to really, um, review all the evidence that they need so any sense could you say you listen to the hearing uh, tapes any sense about the different the quality of different attorneys and what made maybe an attorney more effective do you ever hear situations where you felt the attorney made a real difference either way i think so i think so i think that attorneys who you know are prepared and who are know who know what they're doing and understand the law are light years ahead because um, there are plenty of attorneys who do come into the hearing room and it's clearly their first social security case that they've ever tried. And they really don't, you know, they might not have read, um, you know, POMs or SSRs or anything like that. And they're just kind of winging it and they might not even fully understand what a residual functional capacity is. Um, you know, I definitely saw stuff or heard stuff like that when I would be listening to hearings. I mean, I heard hearings where judges would berate the lawyers for not knowing what they're doing. Um, but you know, you hear all kinds of stuff in those hearings, all kinds of stuff. And, um, but I do think that having a lawyer who knows what they're doing clearly matters and can make all of the difference. Um, this, this is sort of an aside, but the only other time I've touched social security since working for the social security administration was, um, in about J July of 2018. So about a year after I had left the agency, and for a few months leading up to July, 2018, I co-chaired a case with a person who is a great attorney, but who had never, to my knowledge, tried a social security case. So she relied on me heavily to 
advise her and to kind of develop the arguments for this um, client that our organization had. Um, we worked for a public service legal organization and um, once in a while we'll get SSI cases for, you know, impoverished clients. And, you know, in that case, I did all the work up, um, you know, created, you know, the argument for the RFC that will grid this person out. And then also, you know, backup arguments too, because it's always good to sort of have more than one theory of the case. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so I did that. And then, you know, we went to the hearing and everything like that and presented the case. And before the hearing, we presented a pre-hearing um, brief, which the judge said she did review. Like at the hearing, she told us she had reviewed it and stuff. So, I mean, that's just a classic case of being prepared, having the arguments ready, putting it in writing in a pre-hearing brief. And then the judge in that case had no problem awarding benefits when frankly, between you and me, that case had major weaknesses and could have easily been an unfavorable. It ended up being a favorable and the, the, the client who had been homeless because um, we were a legal services organization, he ended up getting about $40,000 of back wow. pay. It was, it was glorious. So that was my last social security case and it ended on a high note. But, but yeah, it just goes to, yeah, you want to be prepared. You want to have a good attorney. Um, and yeah, other bad attorneys can definitely just make the judge mad. And I'm sure that that's going to be more likely to turn out to be an unfavorable case. Interesting. Don't know where to begin? Get my free Secrets to Getting Approved Survival Kit. Inside the kit, I discuss such things as how do you know if you have a case? What to do if you're denied? How to avoid common mistakes? And my ever popular, how to avoid trick questions from the judge? Subscribing is free and easy. Just visit ssdanswers.com and look for the survival kit for instant access. Remember, time is eroding your position every day. Don't delay. Act now. That's ssdanswers.com for your free survival kit. And just final couple questions. Um, you know, obviously you reviewed a lot of medical records, a lot of exhibit files. Any particular uh, diseases or conditions jump out at you as being ones that typically were getting approved or ones that were not getting approved? Did you see any trends in that regard? Um, let me think for a second. It's been a while. So, yeah. I mean, I just got to know people sometimes email me and, you know, my sense has always been that, you know, a lot of these autoimmune conditions like fibromyalgia or, um, you know, just anything that, that is, you know, very difficult to image is always a, more of an uphill battle. I was just curious as to if you had that same observation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true. I mean, I guess I'll put it to you like this. This might not be totally responsive, mm -hmm. but as a decision writer, you are, for the most part, writing unfavorables almost day in and day out. Favorables are not as common. And so the decision writer, at least from my standpoint, from the writing center, is a person who sees just a ton of unfavorable instructions come through regardless of the impairments and you start to feel a little bit jaded like you get this sense that man ALJs are just denying cases left and right um kind of regardless of the impairment um hmm. you know of course there were favorables and everything and I don't want to sound you know jaded or anything like that or give a bad impression of the agency but yeah I don't know um I'm trying to think I can, I can say that most of the cases seem like they involve, you know, back pain, neck pain, right. And that type of thing. And then depression. I mean, it seems, it seems like those are, those are showing up 
75% of the time or more as severe impairments. But as far as impairments that stand out as big winners or big losers, yeah, I can't really remember. Okay, that's fine. I just was curious because, you know, people a lot of times will email me and say, you know, I've got this diagnosis. Do I have a winning case? And of course, the answer is I don't know because you have to see what the medical record says and what the doctor thinks. But my rule of thumb generally is, you know, if it's objective evidence, you know, something can be imaged with an MRI or a CT, ultrasound, things like that, uh, myelogram, then, you know, you have a real edge because the judge has something to hang his hat on as opposed to, you know, even something like depression, if it's a mild level of depression, it's very right. hard to know what somebody is experiencing. You know, you can't jump in their skin. And, you know, it certainly makes it easier for a judge to deny a case when there is nothing objective, even if the person truly is hurting. Um, and that can be very frustrating for people. And, and I certainly understand that. But, uh, right. Cases like headaches. I mean, I think judges are just inherently um, skeptical when that's going to be your main severe impairment. Right. Because they really can't tell unless you have a really strong medical evidence or medical opinion in there saying, no, this person has really bad migraines and they just cannot work basically. But yeah, it all depends on the evidence, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's true. I think again, you know, the, the, these cases that are less objective, you know, you need stronger evidence, longer, you know, what they call longitudinal treatment record of longstanding treatment and, uh, and real strong support for a treating doctor and you you have a chance at it. Um, You know, my feeling has always been that the word judge is both a noun and a verb. And a good judge is one who will apply both of those, you know, make a judgment, but also look at the person and say, you know, is this person, you know, being truthful? You know, can I, can I believe this person? And, you know, some judges are, or if they don't have direct evidence, they're going to deny without really listening to what the person has to say. Other judges are going to, you know, really listen and try to, uh, you know, figure out, you know, they want to do the right thing, you know, either approve or not. Or not. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is. So, um, okay, well, any, any other fo- closing comments, anything else you want uh, people to know about the decision writing process or um, Social Security in general? Or yeah, we I think cut, I, we, yeah, go okay. ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, I think I didn't really talk too much about training. And I guess I want to comfort, you know, perhaps your audience and let them know that decision writers are pretty heavily trained. Um, so when they do start off, they're, they're not just jumping into writing immediately. They are, you know, in sort of a, an intensive classroom lecture style training for, I'm thinking it's three weeks, two to three weeks. I think it's three weeks where you're in class, you're looking at PowerPoints, you know, people who have been there for a while are educating you on the sequential evaluation process. You start during that training period to draft, um, you know, first small sections of decisions, right? Like SGA or yeah, eventually the residual functional capacity um, and all the different sections you might see in a, in a case. And then eventually start drafting mock cases that aren't real, or, but that maybe are based on real cases from the past that they sort of reuse and recycle for these trainings so that before you even draft your first real case, you have drafted, um, you know, at least a handful of kind of mock cases. Mm-hmm. And then training doesn't end just at the very beginning. Training occurs throughout one's tenure at the agency. Anytime there are changes to regulations, for example, you're going to get trained on those. I mean, you remember how back in, early 2017, I believe it was, they changed the entire analysis of the B criteria for mental impairments. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that yeah. was a major training event um, that we had to attend 
to, to really learn and really understand those changes. So they're on top of stuff like that. Um, they've got these things called videos on demand that they send out periodically, just kind of like continuing education so mm -hmm. that you're still staying sharp and all these kind of random case types. And yeah, so training keeps going. Um, another thing I'll say is I can't speak to the perspective of writers from the national hearing centers or hearing offices since I wasn't one, but I do think they probably play a little bit bigger role in the overall disposition of the case because I know that attorney advisors or decision writers who work at the National Hearing Center, for example, they do quite a bit of pre-hearing workup and that can include advising the judge on what they think the outcome should be. Um, and I've seen a few of those memos that the attorneys will write to the judge basically saying, here's what I found when I worked up the file, here's what I think the disposition should be, et cetera. So writers at those different models probably have a greater degree of um, influence on the overall outcome, which frankly is probably a good thing because I think the decision writer at a national hearing center or even at a writing center like the one where I work in, we have more time with the case file than the, yeah. than the ALJ I think does. We're probably the person who has the most time with the case file. So to the extent that we can influence the outcome, it's probably a good thing. Um, and yeah, and I was, I was really surprised to hear, I mean, when you're talking four to eight hours. I mean, that's way more time than a judge, you know, often spends on, has time to really spend on a case. Uh, right. I mean, I've, I've been in hearings where a judge will say, you know, to me and to my client, you know, uh, I want you to know I've reviewed the case over the weekend, but I didn't have a time chance to look at the whole thing and I'm going to look at it afterwards. But you're right. I think that, you know, uh, the attorney advisors would be great resources for the judges if, if they uh, were so inclined to use them that way. Yeah. yeah had I stayed there, I kind of wish I would have, you know, worked for a particular judge in a kind of a clerkship type capacity. And I think that would have been really neat to really influence the disposition, but I was just a workhorse. I just went in, wrote cases essentially for three years, you know, day in, day out. Um, I mean, I, I, I meant to kind of give you a picture of what the writing center is like in Baltimore, um, not to keep the conversation going no, for too that's long. That's fine. No, that's fine. It's kind of funny cocktail party type conversation. Back when I worked there, people would ask me, well, what is your work like? What is your work environment like? And what it's like is they took an old Sam's Club in you know, outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and converted it into essentially cubicles as far as the eye can see. You know, wow. they, drop, they drop the ceiling down so you have sort of a lower ceiling, but you, it's cubicles as far as the eye can see. And that's what, if you're a decision writer at a National Case Assistance Center, you know, and I mentioned there are five of these, yeah. they, they house, you know, lots of attorneys, you're working in a cubicle. You know, you don't have an office, it's not very glamorous. You're working in a cubicle, you're typing, you're just reviewing cases. It's pretty quiet. You can go months without talking to a colleague if you want. <laughs> there are shy people who are introverts who do love this job because they can just go in and never interact with anybody. I mean, aside from the occasional group meeting and things mm -hmm. like that. But um, the other thing about decision writing now to keep in mind is they've gone to a full telework model or at least significant telework model. And I'm sure, especially now during yeah. the pandemic, um, this is a job you can do from you know, your home. So I think that a lot of writers are now probably not even in the center physically. They're probably just writing from home. And of course they have to earn those privileges, but yeah, it's likely that the person who writes your social security decision may have been doing it, you know, with their dog sleeping at their side mm -hmm. and from the comfort of their own home. Um, but the last thing I'll say about decision writers is they're, they're all pretty good. I mean, I was impressed with my colleagues, frankly. I mean, they're all smart. They're all attorneys. Um, and you know, I, I, 
I think that if anything, um, claimants should take comfort knowing that they've got that type of person looking at the case, like an extra set of eyes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because your, your way you described the rows and rows of cubicles, that was my vision of what it was like, you know, that you had these attorney advisors, you know, kind of busily, you know, working away in this warren of, of, uh, of cubicles, but I didn't have any idea that it took, you know, four to eight hours to make it to write a decision. That, that's really very interesting. Yeah. It's, and they call it a white collar factory sometimes. Yeah. And wow. that's why I think I ended up getting out of the work because it was just, it was a little too much for my personality, but there are mm-hmm. some people who really thrive in it. I know people who are still working there. They're doing great. And they're, you know, that much closer to retirement. So and with mm-hmm. a pension. Ever, do you think you'll ever go back into uh, the social security disability world? Either as an I mean, attorney I, think or- I may just because even in thinking about this for this podcast, I, you know, it, it seems so familiar to me and, mm-hmm. you know, familiarity often does lead one to, um, you know, make career choices and things. If you have a little bit more expertise than others, then why yeah. not? So yeah, I can see myself doing it. I, I doubt I'll ever go back into the decision writing though, because mm-hmm. I just think I just don't have the, you know, the energy for it right. as I get older, um, just personally, but I would love to one day maybe be a claimant's attorney. Um, I'm trying to finish out my public service loan forgiveness. Yes. Cause I have, I have student loans and I have five more years on my public service loan forgiveness. But after that, you know, there's, anything that I want to do is fine. And I may, it would not be surprising if I got back into representing claimants as, you know, claimants rep. Okay. Very good. Well, listen, I appreciate the time. This has been really, really interesting because again, uh, the whole decision writing process to me was kind of a black box. I didn't really know how it worked. And other than, you know, my vision of, uh, you know, the the sea of cubicles, I think uh, you've really kind of enlightened me and I'm sure enlightened the people in the, in the audience about it. So thank you very much. I I appreciate it, Jonathan. Anytime, um, you know, I've always enjoyed talking to you and um, frankly, I probably wouldn't be where I am without having worked for you back in 2009 and 2010. Well, no, it was fun. We had, we had some good times. We actually, that was a really busy time. I remember, and uh, you know, the, you used to write the pre-hearing briefs and that was really very helpful. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, 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 we were, we were getting, we we're getting a lot of cases uh, processed and I think doing good work for people. So very good. All right. Well, that sounds great. We'll talk again soon. All right. See you here. Bye. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. Subscribe to this podcast for regular updates at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this podcast useful, then please give me a five-star review because it helps others see the value of my information. Thank you in advance. For a 100% free and confidential evaluation of your case, visit ssdanswers.com. That's ssdanswers.com. Don't delay. Act now.